Welcome to The Confessional. I'm Mike Moran. Tell us your deepest, your creepiest, your funniest. Confess to us. No one's listening. Okay, and we're live. All right. All right, guys, listen, before we move on to Paul's uh, forbidden movie, I want to discuss the the phenomenon of the movie novelization. Were you guys ever a part of that? Did you ever? Oh, for sure. Like a movie you couldn't see, you would get the novelization of? Well, I I, I usually uh, like got the novelizations of movies I've already seen. Oh, okay. What about you, Paul? Never did that. Yeah, I saw the novelizations as just like analogous to what what we consider fan fiction now. Um, and right. I, I I was a snobby little kid. I, I got I got into <laughs> I got into Siskel and Ebert very young, and I started adopting these pretenses that, uh, in retrospect, I'm, I'm you know I, I would be pretty embarrassed about. Uh, I, I remember seeing this. Uh, there was this 11 year old critic on like one of the morning shows, like circa 15 years ago. Um, and there's a clip of him on YouTube. Uh, Google uh, or look up 11 year old film critic. And uh, he just talks about, it's a great family film. You can bring the whole family to see it. And he's like a little a little Leonard Maltin. Um, and that was probably me as a kid. Uh, right, right. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say that you just wanted to destroy him. I did. I did also <laughs> want to destroy him. Oh, he so wants to destroy himself. himself That's self-loathing, a... I think. That, right, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Type of guy who punches a lot of mirrors, I think. <laughs> um, I remember getting the novelization of Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Oh, wow. When that was in the theater. <laughs> Yeah, I, do you guys know what Wes Craven's New Nightmare was? Yeah, I saw New Nightmare. It, it was. Uh, do you know Sue? It was like a weird meta movie where Wes Craven decided that all the Nightmare on Elm Streets were terrible except for the first one that he made, and he was going to make a meta one that commented on, uh, you know, the the state of horror and its relationship to society and as entertainment and and all this pretentious stuff. I mean, that sounds kind of interesting. A lot of I've people love it. it. I think it's garbage. What do you think of it, Paul? Uh, yeah, I saw it a few years ago for the first time, and mm. it felt like an orchestra tuning up to uh, for Scream. Right, right. Um, but yeah. I, I thought it was okay, but given its reputation, I, I didn't. Right. Really, I wasn't yeah. excited by it. People act like it's this brilliant masterpiece, and I think it's pretty terrible. I think people, but I, uh, people have a tendency to do that with meta films. Right, um, right. And I don't think every meta film that's self aware is is necessarily brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Um, I guess it was a little bit ahead of its time because it was kind of before the whole meta thing. But, sure. Um, yeah, in '94, it may have seemed more like ahead yeah. of its time than it does in retrospect. Yeah, like the actors play themselves, you know, and like somehow a demon has taken over Freddy, and it, it's yeah. it's some weird. He comes to life because people are scared of him. Yeah. You know, there's a Hansel and Gretel subplot. There's it's really kind of like meta self awareness is always interesting to see, like prior to Curb Your Enthusiasm. I think Larry, the Larry Sanders show, was was the first program that like really uh, like uh, normalized it or Mm. brought it uh, into the commercial realm. But King of Comedy as well, you know, and that was in the 1980s, and that flopped at a time that was roundly rejected. And, yeah. uh, and then, you know, there was Kiss Me Stupid with Dean Martin in the 1960s, the Billy Wilder film in which Dean Martin plays himself as a real asshole, kind of a womanizing prick, the kind of guy who'd be Me too like in uh Oh, shit. <laughs> uh, oh, wow. So it's, yeah, it's really interesting to see him uh, playing that version of himself. Wow, interesting. But uh, the, the funny thing was with this novelization, the, the writer took it upon himself to add in another layer of meta mm-hmm. and, and, and inserted... Uh, 
uh, diary pages, journal pages of him and his relationship with Freddie coming into his world. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, in middle school, I thought I, I was pretty sure it was fake. But there's like a little part of me that was like, maybe this is real. And maybe like, you know, maybe yeah. I'm going to be next. Like with Candyman. Right. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm still loath to say Candyman's name five times. <laughs> I, I honestly, I was saying this the other day. That should be a challenge that people are doing online yeah. because I, I won't do it. Yeah. Is, is that movie like delayed? Yeah. The new one's delayed. Yeah. The new Jordan Peterson or Jordan Peele one. Uh, quick tangent. What are we going to do when there's no new media for like two years after oh, this? Yeah. Yeah. yeah true. <laughs> we'll watch RoboCop and Wes Craven's new nightmare. True. Paul, I mean, that's, I think, that's, I think that's you're going to need to make me. Anyway, so it's not going to be anything new for me. Right. You're going to need to make me like a list of shit to watch. I only like started actually giving a shit about movies like two years ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was someone that watched movies, but I didn't, you know. I, I, they weren't my thing you know music was my thing pretty much but uh i don't know that is it, like in the last two years i've finally started like trying to understand movies and like you know and it's 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 actually quite rewarding but i have a hu- i have a huge like backlog of crap that i have you know that is important that i haven't gotten around to seeing you know mm-hmm. sounds like you've pretty much seen everything i have my blind spots as well like like what's <laughs> what's one that every which ones that, that uh, what is a film that everyone is shocked you haven't seen paul oh that's a great question um up until recently the lion king oh the lion you know i, I actually just saw that recently too and i saw uh, that in the, the, the woman i'm dating was like oh tell i can't wait to hear much how much you loved it when you're done and i did not love it really oh. did not love it i found yeah. it really problematic in fact uh and, and by the well, end of like, it I, I i relaxed that a little bit um, but I, I feel there, there really is an issue with color coding in animated films, especially from the 90s. Uh, in which sure. were dark and, and queer coding, and too. And, uh, and additionally, in Lion King, you have like the hyenas that are voiced by Whoopi Goldberg and Cheech Marin. And they have this kind of urban vibe mm. to them. And uh, and then but then it's like uh, it's they they, they uh, uh, mobilize into this kind of fascist regime. And it's just really mm. bizarre. Mm. And uh, I, yeah. it's hard to think that the, the creators had no awareness of of the subtext. Right, right. And it's always weird with like uh, Animal Kingdom movies because they eat each other, you know? Yeah. Like that that, <laughs> right. that society can't exist without them cannibalizing sure. the other yeah. members of their village. Yeah, and that's a challenge. I mean, you know, that is the law of, of, uh, of uh, life in the animal kingdom. But when you're right. anthropomorphizing animals, um, you, you really need to challenge that, I feel. Mm-hmm. All right, Paul. Wait, wait, wait. What? Let me, I just want to say that uh, uh, I, I read uh, the novelization of the movie Audition. Oh Wait, my! Did goodness. you really? I did. I, I I read it while I was because okay, I, that movie like freaking traumatized me when I saw it. You know, I saw it around nine eleven. <laughs> let's say you know? that's a good time. Yeah, to I know. Uh, get the spirits up. But but like I remember like I I saw it in the in a Barnes and Noble like in the like DVD section. They had like a little shelf of like novelizations, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh my god, because I was like, I know I'm never gonna watch this fucking movie again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I picked up the book and I just like read it the entire thing nice. <laughs> like while I was like standing there in Barnes and Noble. <laughs> I think the novelization might have even been scarier. Really? Well, I think they like added added some um, really disturbing scenes mm-hmm. that they might not have been able to do in the movie. Mm. Wow. Uh, that like, I don't know. 
uh, made me. I don't. Uh, it made me. Even, and then my brain like put them in the movie. Sure. And now, sure. and then when I showed it to you, Mike, I actually showed showed this movie to Mike like a month ago mm-hmm. or something like that. And I and there I was waiting for this really disturbing scene oh, to come up, and it, it? Ne- and it never did. Uh, so anyway, have you seen uh, Have you seen Von Trier's Antichrist? Oh, uh, I started to watch that one. I I I couldn't take the opening and then I hear that it got even worse so I didn't finish it well I didn't know where it was going and I, I took a date to see it it was our second date oh, uh, man. And, and to say there was not a third date sure <laughs> right yeah yeah um, alright Paul what was your forbidden movie as a child so my very first R-rated movie that I saw was David Mamet's House of Games and awesome. I, I was seven years old and I was obsessed with watching this movie. I had to watch this movie. That's a really <laughs> wild movie. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't know who the name it was. I didn't, you know, I was I was six. Uh, but I, the, there was something about this movie that really intrigued me, and I wanted to know it. It looked very forbidding and adult. And the poster was like adult. these two solemn-looking adults in like a, an alleyway, and it was a very film noir, and it had almost like a smell to it, like a musty, drippy smell. It incidentally smelled like the theater that was showing it. That may have had something to do with it. I remember right. first discovering House of Games. My mother uh, – th- so uh, l- let me just uh, wind back a bit and begin with my like relationship with movies, uh, which – Early on was like non-existent. It was uh, my my first attempts to watch movies as a child were abortive uh, because I was afraid of the dark. And so my very first uh, memory uh, in a movie theater was at Disney, the Magic Kingdom's Main Street Cinema mm-hmm. when I was two and a half. Uh, and I had to be removed very quickly because it was dark inside and I was afraid of the dark. Mm-hmm. And unwisely, my parents took me to see Gremlins that same year. And I was okay until the gremlins appeared, and I, I just had to be removed. I was screaming. Sure. I was sobbing. You were so little. Yeah, that's pretty young I, for I, gremlins. I wasn't even three. And I can't, uh, I I can't believe you remember movies. that. Yeah, I didn't get back to the movies. for. I have memories. My earliest memory, I think, is like uh, between age one and two. Really? Wow. Yeah. I, I was I shat in the bathtub in my father's bathroom. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a memory of that, too, but it was like four years ago. <laughs> Did your father scold you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't until like, uh, I think 1987 that I, I returned the movies. I saw Benji the Hunted, which oh, really bored that. me. And my, my interests at that age were like uh, insects and nature and astronomy. And uh, I just had this, the, this love affair with astronomy. And I remember uh, we went to like this little kitty museum in Fort Lauderdale where it was called the Discovery Center. And it was uh, it was housed in this like... Victorian era mansion and every room was a different like micro exhibit. So there's like a mini aquarium, like an insect room with the hissing cockroaches cool. that kids love. Wow. There was like a mini planetarium that you crawled into. And I remember going to the mini planetarium and the guide was talking about Orion and talking about Beetlejuice, which was my favorite star. That was my favorite. That was my there's a star movie. called Beetlejuice. Yeah. There's a star what? called Beetlejuice. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fucked up. It's, it's what? a red giant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Did a nine year old get to name it. Yeah, probably. It's spelled differently. I think it's spelled B-E-T-E-L-G-U-E-S-E. Uh, well, but, which, uh, which is the chicken or the egg here? Did the movie come first? Or I'm pretty it... sure the star came no, first. No, the star man. came first. I think it's So the movie is named after a star? No, so the well, movie, yeah, the movie was phonetically named after a star. And that's when I first became aware of the movie. So I had to see this movie. 
And so my mother and I were eating slices one night in the local mall, and right across the, uh, the from the pizzeria was a was a twin cinema. Inside mm. the mall it was a second run theater. And so Beetlejuice was already in the red giant phase of its theatrical lifespan. <laughs> and my mother asked me, do you, do you want, do you want to see Beetlejuice? I said, yeah, let's go see Beetlejuice. So we walked in late. We walked in just as the car uh, had crashed through the, uh, the covered bridge and was about to go into the water, but it was just the right time because it, I, it established that these people became ghosts. And I was transfixed by this movie. Like it was this, and you don't see movies like Beetlejuice uh, in, uh, you know, from studios now. Because Beetlejuice mm. is almost like this pop art, uh, abstract combining of elements, much more like a recipe than a traditional narrative where you have like, a, it's a ghost story and it's a satire of like 80s pop art. And you have the Calypso music and the football players and all these things that are just completely disparate elements that somehow work perfectly. And mm. I was obsessed from that point forward with movie going and going to the movies and saving like the uh, the weekend section of the paper with the movie re- movie reviews. Oh, yeah. And so my mother approached, she, she struck up a friendship with the uh, the pimple-faced manager of the theater. He must have been like 17 <laughs> years old. I think yeah. his name was Brian. The squeaky, so she, the squeaky voice guy from The Simpsons. That's exactly who it was. No and so she was trying to, she wanted my, uh, to um, uh, stage my birthday party at the theater. Oh. And she was trying to persuade them to program something that was kid-friendly. And, what, and so during that meeting, they were running House of Games. And I remember peeking into the auditorium. And uh, I was just, that's, that's when I became obsessed with seeing House of Games. Hmm. And the, uh, the, the conclusion of the birthday party saga is that they booked the weekend of my birthday, Tucker, a man in his dreams and dead oh, yeah. ringers. And my mother was pissed off and didn't talk to Brian for like months. They uh, had no influence in the programming, obviously. Well, I hope they worked it out. <laughs> uh, so, but I had to see house of games. And so ultimately my parents reached a compromise and they said, look, we'll rent it. We'll watch it. And then we'll tell you about it. And I said, okay, that sounds fair. But immediately <laughs> I began hatching a plan to, to figure out a way to sneak yeah. out and sure. watch this movie undetected. And right. so that night, at nine o'clock, they put me to bed and they told me they were going to watch House of Games. They tell me about it in the morning. And five minutes later, I ninja back out into the living room. I hid behind the couch. I watched House of Games in its entirety. <laughs> and then the next day, I storyboarded the film in like a sketch pad, replete with dialogue, like, what the fuck are you doing with a flush? And I showed it to my mother uh, and she was not pleased. Well, would, did you tell her that you created this storyboard from their recounting of it? <laughs> Or... No, no, no. I, I confess that I, I, oh, I see. watched the film. And she said, I knew you were going to do that. I had a feeling. <laughs> how, wait, how old were you again? Seven. Oh, my God. What? Okay, I'm pretty sure I know what House of Games is, but I'm not positive. It's about like a, a, a grifter, right? Like a guy who... Yeah, so it's it's about... Lindsey Krauss is a uh, a uh, an author and psychologist who... Um, a client uh, is threatening suicide, and he says that he's going to be killed, and he owes this guy money... And he gives her an address. She shows up at this like billiard room and she meets this character played by Joe Montaigne, who loops her into uh, a, uh, a poker game. Okay. And uh, long story short, she realizes that she's being grifted and uh-huh. she, she catches them in the act. And Joe Montaigne is like, you're, you're really sharp. And ultimately, she wants to know more about how they operate. And she's drawn into their mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, she becomes uh, she realizes that she I don't want to spoil it. Uh, right, right. Uh, <laughs> Isn't it? Uh... It, it, wasn't there a scene with like a bus terminal where he, he tricks the other person into paying for his bus ticket? Yeah, that's William H Macy. Okay, it's not yeah, it's yeah. not a bus terminal. It's a uh, Western Union station. Oh right, right. I have to. Sorry, I forgot to put my uh, notifications and do not disturb. You're <laughs> so, fired. 
I thought uh, your Western your Western Union yeah, order yeah. Was Western Union just came in. Yeah. That actually sounds kind of awesome. Um, it also sounds like if I like, I'm thinking of how I would have reacted to that as a seven year old, mm-hmm. and I would have been like, "That's the most boring thing I can possibly." Yeah, imagine. it doesn't seem like it was very <laughs> gratuitous or anything. I think my dad actually introduced me to that movie. I mean, why why was that movie rated R? Just the cursing. Uh, yeah, the profanity. There's some violence in it. Um, I, you know, I remember the uh, so our local paper, the Sun Sentinel, the capsule reviews would tell you why the movie was rated what it was rated. Oh, and how wow. the claim was rated R due to adult situations, obscenity, violence, and sexual situations. And so I remember I was in my first grade classroom, and during free time, we had those like big pieces of ruled handwriting paper that was made from like recycled, cheap recycled. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, sure. Did it, you know, the, like the big one, and there was like the dashed line in the middle? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What? Okay. So yeah, I, yeah. When you could practice sitting, cursive and stuff. Yeah, you would practice your, yeah, your handwriting. And so I was sitting in during free time, and I replicated the uh, capsule review from the Sun Sentinel in its entirety. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I wow. found my first grade teacher looking over my shoulder, and she said, what's this? And I said, oh, it's a movie review from the paper. And she cut me off. She said, this is not appropriate to be working on in the classroom. Oh, I'm going to have to take this uh, from you. And she took it from me, and it was presented during, like, a, a parent-teacher conference. Oh, no. <laughs> what? As, like, what not to do? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Wow. Oh, my God. That, you... that seems pretty mild. Like, it's... I would I say, know. you know, this is South Florida in the 80s, so not the most progressive. Right. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, my God. You, you sound like the most fascinating little kid. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I wish my teachers thought so. Yeah, right? Wow. <laughs> Man. Um... All right. Well, let us jump into another confession here. This is from Vicky Sinkoff, Lebanon, Pennsylvania. Oh, Lebanon. 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 That's a that's how people from Lebanon say it. Do they? I mean, kind of. Yeah. Are you familiar with Lebanon? Or you I am actually. How do you know Lebanon? Because <sighs> I had a friend in college named Pablo, and he had a friend named Fuss. Yeah, Pablo and Fuss. We yeah, all know Fuss, about them. And from Fuss Lebanon. was from Lebanon, Pennsylvania, but he always pronounced it Lebanon. That's all. That's how I know. And, and and me and Pablo would sort of make fun of him Pablo, for saying Lebanon. Anyway. Pa, the adventures of Pablo and Fuss. If we could interrupt the adventures of Pablo and Fuss for one minute. <laughs> uh, my mom wouldn't let me watch The Day After, which was a made-for-TV film about the day after a nuclear attack. Um, it was probably wise on her part. I was terrified of nuclear war as a kid until the Cold War ended. I finally got to see it years later. She made the right choice. I was already having recurring nightmares about nuclear war. And when I was lying in bed at night and would hear planes fly overhead, I'd always pray it wasn't, quote unquote, the Russians. Well, I can relate to that one. Me too. Let me tell you. Uh, actually, I didn't watch the day after, like, as a, as a child. Mm-hmm. My parents knew, knew better than that because mm-hmm. I was terrified of terrified of nuclear war. Sure. And terrified of, like, anything catching on fire. Um, and, uh, like pathologically terrified. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it, it, but I did see, you know, of course, but, I, but now I'm just completely obsessed with, with nuclear war movies and that's a pretty good one. It's kind of sort of like tame on the spectrum of nuclear war movies that came out in the eighties. Really? Well, it's like, you, I've always heard it's terrifying. It is, but then you got to watch threads and it, it makes, uh, makes a day after look like the Muppet show. Really? Great film about nuclear war from the 80s is a film called Testament. 
Hmm. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I, I really, oh god, I really like yeah. that one. That one is sad. Never heard it's of very it. Very sad. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's like that really re- explores the reality of what it would be like after you know uh, a, a nuclear detonation or a series of nuclear de- detonations. I mean, mm-hmm. what a nuclear winter. I mean, that depicts a nuclear winter. Yeah. I have huh. this, I have a, I have like such a memory. There's this like one scene where God, God, who I'm trying to remember who plays the mother of uh, God, you know, I want to say it's Susan Hancock, but I, uh, I don't think that's the case. It's Jane, Jane. Oh God. Jane I'm remembering o- it as Shelley Duvall from Jane the shining, but it's, but it's not whatever, hmm. but she's like, but her, her, she has kids and there's no food left. And she's like, just mm. like, look, she's like, takes out the jar of peanut butter and just like runs her hand around the finger around the inside of it. Oh, I and, do there, that. and there's but there's just like nothing left oh, you man. know and i don't know it's uh ugh. what kind of film was this like a theatrical release or was uh-huh. it a tv movie or i think it was a testament yeah it's testament. A limited, limited uh theatrical release yeah I think oh, it's okay play. okay i mean the day after though that was like a really important cultural event i've heard a lot about that i didn't watch didn't they show no, it like with no, no commercial like, TV movies could be events like brian's song yeah. and the burning bed and that kind of like ceased to be in like the late nineties, early two mm-hmm. thousands, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what one got me was that uh, the man who saw tomorrow. Did you guys ever watch that? Yeah, I never uh-uh. saw that. It was about Nostrad. I believe it was a TV movie oh, first, yeah, yeah, hosted yeah, yeah, by yeah, Orson yeah, yeah, Welles. Yeah. Oh yeah, of course, oh. of course, of course, of course. It was about Nostradamus and his predictions. And and how and they and they made it seem well, like they had all here, come true. Well, here, yeah, and here's the thing: I saw it probably like eight or nine years after it first aired on video. And it seemed to be accurately predicting the the first Iraq War as it was happening. Is that a documentary? Docu drama, I guess. Well, it's 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 like it's kind of like the type of thing you'd see on like the History Channel, right? Right, yeah. Like ancient aliens right. or something. No, Orson Welles would lend his voice and likeness to pretty much anything. Oh yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. No, I mean it's, but it's absolutely worth watching. Uh huh. Yeah, know? it terrified me as a child. God, it was scary. And the scenes of the uh, the French Revolution with the guillotining of the the royals that gave me nightmares. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it seems like a lot of people from our generation who grew up in the in the you know the eighties uh, Red Scare have the the day after as as like a traumatizing moment. It was yeah. a little before my time. Yeah, me too, me too. But I still hear about it a lot. I was really I was most intrigued by horror movies because most horror movies uh, were rated R, right. uh, and so it, that the whole genre was like forbidden terrain for sure. me. The first horror movie I ever watched, like my introduction to horror, I think was Friday the Thirteenth the series. Mm. Oh, yeah. That was good. Yeah, I saw that you liked that on your Facebook. I've still have never. I'm a huge Friday the Thirteenth movie fan. I've never yeah. seen the series, so yeah, it's it's related really in name only, and I think it mm-hmm. shares a uh, an executive producer. But uh, it's so it's, it's about a uh, an antique shop uh, whose previous owner had made like a Faustian pact with the devil, resulting in all the antiques being like cursed, and then mm-hmm. each episode. Uh, uh, detailed the recovery of one of those cursed antiques that somehow made its way into the world, and and meanwhile you're watching the consequences of that of someone exploiting that cursed antique. Uh, it's a really good show, and unfortunately, so the show is shot on film, but it was edited on video. So the likelihood of there ever being HD masters of that show is pretty much nil. I don't think there's sufficient commercial interest uh, to like oh, reassemble the, the mm. yeah the raw materials. It really mm. really sucks. Uh, but the first feature, the first horror feature I ever saw was Creepshow 2. Oh. And it was a a, T, a network TV or like a, maybe it was a TNT or TBS broadcast. So it was mm. uh, edited for gore. Mm. Uh, mm. And it wasn't, I think, until like maybe age 10, age 11 that I, I saw Creepshow 2 uh, in its entirety without the gore excised 
Uh, and by that age, my parents had begun to kind of relaxing their, mm. uh, you know, their restrictiveness with respect to R-rated movies. My, my mother, the first R-rated movie my, my mom took me to see was a film called Disorganized Crime with hmm. uh, Fred Gwynn, Ed O'Neill, Ruben Blades. Not not a really good movie, not remarkable in any way, right. except the first film that that I was, first R-rated movie my, my either my parents allowed me to see. Um, horror, horror for me, and I love horror. Horror is my favorite genre if I had yeah, to me too. one. And most horror films suck. It's unfortunate. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But horror films at their best, I think, are the most, it can be the most yeah. cinematic of all uh, Absolutely. genres. Because We've had did. a few good years, though, with the, with the horror genre, haven't we? Yeah, I think that elevated horror has become, uh, you know, uh, trendy the last five, ten years. Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, in, in the 80s and 90s, like, particularly in the 90s, like horror began really kind of drifting into the territory of the musical and Western. Mm-hmm. Um, there were so few really great horror mm-hmm. films mm-hmm. in the 1990s. Leprechaun me, I, in the I, Hood. <laughs> Leprechaun <laughs> Back to the Hood. Tales from the Hood. Uh, oh, Leprechaun. Leprechaun. Yeah, I didn't. I've only seen the first two Leprechaun films. They're they're not. They're really not good. What What are some uh, good recent horror movies that you've enjoyed? Uh, I really like this film called. Uh, I think it's pronounced Luce, Luz. L U Z. I think it's. Uh, I think it's from Spain. Okay. And it's very short. Uh, and it's it's you know it's primarily an exercise in in style and uh, you know just generating spooks. But I, I think that horror can be avant garde. Just like I, I think you can get away with being avant garde in certain commercial genres, horror, mm-hmm. edge comedy, uh, and animation. And mm-hmm. you really you know you don't have to play by the rules with a horror film. All you really have to do is scare. And right. that's I love being scared. Uh, not everyone does. And I think that's like there's a there's a clear dividing line between those who love horror films and those who can't watch horror films. Similarly with true crime, you're either into true crime or you're mm. not. And mm. I think that I suspect that tra- childhood trauma um, is is a as a is a common bond, a factor mm. in what determines one's um, uh, uh, attraction to that kind of material. For me, right. like as I as I mentioned earlier, I was afraid of the dark when I was really small and I had to sleep with a, a light on. And uh, I, I got over that. And I'm glad that I did. But as an adult, I like to revisit that. Sure. Because, you know, mm-hmm. It connects me with that that early, sure. like pre-trauma uh, part yeah, of my life yeah. in early childhood when when I was innocent. And I looked at the world through a kind of un, undaunted lens. And that's why I think the work of David Lynch resonates with me as, as much as it does, because his work really is looking at this kind of scary, beautiful, inexplicable world from the perspective mm-hmm. of a complete innocent where mm-hmm. things are terrifying and then they're kind of wonderful and beautiful and then they're terrifying again you know it's like walking in on your parents when you're like really young and you don't know what's going on it's really upsetting it's upsetting to see stuff like that as a kid mm-hmm. and in david lynch's films like for for me like the a, a disappearance is so much spookier than a murder regardless mm-hmm. yeah, of what sure. because there's a there's a big void there's an unanswered question and lynch shows you what's happening but it's still vague. You don't know what you're looking at. Uh, and so you kind of, he has his cake in, in, in uh, I hate that fucking idiom. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, who wants to just have the cake? Everyone's right, going to eat exactly. it. Exactly. You know? Yeah. But I, I just love that. I love ambiguity and I love yeah. unresolved mysteries. Absolutely. In Not in real yeah. life, but in I, fiction. I feel like your, your brain, you know, your mind can always like, whatever my brain is going to make up is definitely going to be scarier. Yeah. Than like the gore on the screen, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And 
the gore on the screen, you know, it'll get resolved in one way or another. But mm-hmm. my anxiety about never knowing yeah. will never. And yeah. it's and I don't know. I, I really enjoy that for some sure, weird reason. <laughs> I do, too. But I find that it's I feel like that's why it's difficult for a lot of uh, horror movies to have a good final act yeah. to have like a good vanquishing because it, where do you go when it's all built up like when it when it's kept in the shadows and you know they're not they're not like throwing the monster in your face yeah. like how, how do you have a satisfying ending i feel like the exorcist was one of the few that that really did that oh, uh, yeah. satisfactorily with you know just a, a sacrifice instead of a have you seen exorcist three uh yeah yeah i like that one i, I uh i'm not sure if i love it as much as everyone else does i like it a lot i've watched it a bunch i actually just watched it recently with my sister do you like that one better than the original i would say it's about on par wow wow it, it's far quirkier than the original and it's, sure. it's one of only two films that william peter blatty directed mm-hmm. and he's the writer mm-hmm. of the exorcist yeah and uh, the other film that he directed was um the ninth configuration yes yes i saw that years ago which is so uncategorizable and it, uh-huh. it, it i keep wanting to watch it stoned because it's such a disorderly, <laughs> strange right. experience that surprises you with how moving it, it's it's uh denouement is uh mm-hmm. it just sneaks up on you and, and it's it's ultimately this kind of profound completely individualistic film there's nothing else like it right and, yeah and Exorcist three feels like it's cut from the same cloth and mm-hmm. it's all it has mm-hmm. some of the most frightening sequences I've yeah seen in a horror film i've heard some people say that that's the true exorcist trilogy because ninth configuration is uh has the astronaut that's in the exorcist right yeah and jason miller's in it as well uh-huh yeah, and uh, uh, Sue and I right now are actually not very far from the town in which the real exorcist took place in. Is that is that Georgetown? No, okay. uh, Cot- Cottage City, Maryland. Not not ah. far outside of DC. The, yeah, the 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 movie is set in Georgetown. Is it in is in the book? But the real story that the book is based on is uh, from from Cottage City. Is, like, uh, is that like yeah. Prince George's County? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I it's keep like forgetting DC's that cover. they're based on, uh, on on real events. Yeah, and it's a really creepy story too. Someone finally—it was shrouded in mystery. The kid has never done a single interview. Um, somebody did a really good investigation. I'll see if I can find it and send it to you. Um, somebody finally got a hold of him, and uh, the guy I think told him to go to hell. But uh, it's an interesting story. <laughs> and then he did. <laughs> yeah, then it got really interesting. It's just like Jason. You know what you what you were saying about like uh, I don't know you you've like reacting to like horror movies that are like just really stylist like you know stylish or whatever i mean i feel like it's like kind of sounds like a cop-out to say stylish you know because um i don't really i don't think i really like know what that word means except when i watch a movie that has it you know what i'm saying put your finger on um for example uh one of my favorite movies from the last couple years was mandy Mm. um I, i don't know if you saw that i thought that that movie was just fantastic and if you ask me why i can say well uh, it's nicholas cage and the music's really cool and you know but like but then when i just watch it i just Mm -hmm. i'm trying i'm just like transported yeah i think most good art is like that like you can't really put your finger on what makes a song great or what makes yeah yeah you know what i mean like the mystery is is what's what's part of the greatness have you seen mandy paul yeah, I like Mandy a lot. And I think that Mandy is it's a purely aesthetic experience. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it so challenging, I think, Sue, to talk about movies like Mandy, because we're accustomed, we're conditioned to talk about movies in the way you talk about uh, a story and a traditional kind of three-act structure. And I look at movies more as like songs or, mm. or like recipes, hmm. you know? And going back to what you were saying earlier about the imagination creating 
something that's more satisfying ultimately than anything like with, with an unresolved mystery the artist can introduce. I think that that applies to any kind of ambiguity in in any art form. And mm-hmm. when I hear me, it was like songs for the first time, like in restaurants or stores or whatever, not lately because they're all closed, but I'll hear what I think I'll, I'll hear a lyric and I'll think the lyric is one thing and then I'll look the lyric up and mm-hmm. it's something entirely really different. Mm-hmm. And it's always a letdown because, yeah, what I you know, I, you know, I had one of those for decades recently that I found out and it was a huge disappointment, which the was tool, the-, the tool song sober at the very end. I thought he was saying, I want it, but I won't. Which is like a great, uh, mm-hmm. a great line for an addict or an alcoholic, you know? Like that's yeah, yeah. Uh, it's I want what I want. Mm. No, I your one is way better. I know. Yeah, well, I at least agree. I can steal it now. I guess I can use that in my own song. <laughs> that's why. I, that's why I so love Cocteau Twins because no one knows what the fuck Cocteau Twins oh, are singing. God. So it's whatever you want it to be. Uh, for, no, I I hundred hundred percent agree. I the Rorschach blot in musical form. Mm-hmm. Hmm, interesting. That that's you know I'm I'm very much a I love kind of unintelligible vocals you know yeah. um I, I you know i like good lyrics but really i i prefer like the whole composition mm-hmm. to just be interesting and treat the vocals like another instrument you yeah. know and uh it's if, if i really love something i'll be like maybe i'll check what the lyrics are right right but it's always like scary to do because what if they're terrible <laughs> you know and like and then yeah. i have to like hear these lyrics in my head every time I hear this, what what used to be a pleasing sound to me. Right, right. <laughs> well, it's really kind of like a collaboration between the artist and the spectator. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the key to what, that's what makes a great artist a willingness to collaborate. And going back to David Lynch, David Lynch is a highly collaborative artist, someone that he'll go into production and then something unanticipated will happen, like a setback, and he will incorporate that and he will change course accordingly. He's open to dreams and extrinsic things influencing the direction of his work. Now, consider that in contrast to someone like Michael Cimino, who, like back when he was making like advertising shorts in the 1960s, would always come in like way ahead of, uh, uh, way behind schedule and over budget. And this is a problem that plagued him all the way up to Heaven's Gate. And he was ah. someone that do you know? You know, I assume you know something about like the production. At, yeah, uh, I've, I've heard it was a, a huge, massive flop, like like career ending flop. But yeah. uh, actually, someone on my Facebook page was recently arguing that they really enjoyed that film. Oh, it has its defenders for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But the problem with Heaven's Gate is that Michael Cimino, once he began production, closed off, commu- shut down communication with uh, with uh, United Artists and United Artists executives. And uh, he was so exact- exacting with respect to, say, like the, the way two buildings were positioned that if he didn't like the, the way two buildings were positioned, he would have them torn down and rebuilt. Um, there was a sequence, I think the most famous sequence in the film, if you want to call any sequence in Heaven's Gate famous, is this roller derby sequence. And it's a, it's a spectacular sequence for sure. And there are like oh, yeah. hundreds of extras in this big like oh. barn. <laughs> and it took him like four days to set up where each what? extra was going to stand. And it's like he's painting with people. Wow. And for me, that's a marker of a deeply insecure person because they need to feel like they're in control of every single element. And as someone with, with uh, you know, who's been plagued by insecurities myself, I understand the need to feel like you're in control of things. Right. And relinquishing that is a key to growth, I think, as a, as a person and as an artist. And Chimino just never reached that point. He was emboldened by the success of The Deer Hunter and you know, New Hollywood combined with that, just the climate of New Hollywood. It just enabled him to do whatever the fuck he wanted. And uh, that ultimately ended this this era. That and you know, wow. like Jaws and Star Wars. I mm. can't imagine the the like blank check he must have had 
to be yeah. able to do that. Yeah, that so. sounds like a blank check. Yeah, film. <laughs> I mean, wow. Uh, have either of you guys, have you either of you seen um, the documentary back to Lars von Trier again? Uh, the Five Obstructions. No, but mm. uh, so I, I will. <laughs> yeah, it's a documentary by Lars von Trier in which uh, he tracks down this filmmaker who made this short that's like his favorite movie called uh, I think it's called The Perfect Man in the late '60s. He tracks down this filmmaker whose career never really took off and kind of languished in obscurity. And uh, you know he he connects with him and tells him how much he loved the short, and he's like, "I want you to remake the short. I want you to remake the short five times, and each time I'm going to give you a specific set of of limitations that you have to adhere to." Mm. I and love so that. In, in one incarnation, uh, it has to be hand drawn animation, and another incarnation, wow. no one shot can last longer than like two seconds, and then another one, he has to stage the action inside of a tent in front of like a lavish banquet in the middle of the poorest district in Bombay, India, and and that then old trope. Obstructions is no obstructions whatsoever, and wouldn't you know that's that's the one incarnation that he had the most difficulty with. Wow, that is so awesome. We gotta so, watch that. I'm I'm sorry. That is like like uh Paul, I really like agree with you uh, with you know with, with your view of how colla- uh, important collaboration can be yeah. like for creativity. Like I it is impossible and I know that like you know some people aren't like that. Like for example, Mike, okay? Um <laughs> yeah, you know, I need Mike, to be alone Mike's, pacing in a room by Mike, myself. Mike's approach to like making say music is 100% different than mine. Yeah. Um yeah. I you know, it I, couldn't possibly because of, because of okay. the insecurities, like it, Paul was it's saying. More okay, depends on the medium. Right, Film, yeah. collaborative medium. Sure. Uh, you can't enter it with that kind of megalomani- megalomaniacal. That's a that's a challenging word. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> you know, mindset because you know you're you're gonna ultimately uh, sabotage your own career. I think it's for me. It's more of an ADD thing. Like I just can't concentrate unless I'm like cut off yeah. from all distractions and well, alone. I, I but I but I I absolutely love the idea of like having to produce something you know under these kind of you know like arbitrary uh limitations which gee whiz like that's why i uh, i don't know i'm i'm blaming like you know the technology on why i can't get shit done uh but you know when i'm like Oh, okay, I'm gonna. I got this idea for a song, but then I just spend like 16 hours trying out different snare sounds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, like, um, I feel like that. You know, the amount of tools that one has available, like, you know, to like work with on your own, like, mm-hmm. it's. I don't know. It can be. It, it can actually be crippling. You know what I mean? Yeah, having having when you have too many options, yeah, uh, and that's the yeah. problem with like streaming. I can spend the length of a, a movie like two, three hours just trying to find <laughs> right, something. Yeah, yeah. And I yeah, just yeah. Go the scrolling only option. Yeah. Isn't that like a joke in the onion or something like that? <laughs> Netflix introduces so, yeah. like, uh, Paul, just before we get to the last confession, do you have any aspirations of, of making a horror film yourself someday? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, I want to make a short, uh, everything's sort of, sort of shut down right now. Unfortunately. Right. Um, it's, I'm at that point where I'm sort of like, I'm finally moving on from I'll be gone in the dark and GSK and, and, you know, it's really bad timing. Uh, I did want to get back to one thing though. Um, the, the opposite, side of the coin with respect to having uh, outside limitations uh, imposed is um, uh, censorship and the MPAA. Now, I, I would argue that censorship, like the Hayes Code in, in the 1940s and 50s, um, it, it really did create this kind of subversive, like what I was talking about in Chinese cinema in the 80s, uh-huh. where you had um, uh, filmmakers smuggling uh, uh, themes and mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. in their work. Bride of Frankenstein, perhaps? Of the censors, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, 
you know, that, that kind of started to disappear when films became, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, more liberated in, sure. in right. what, yeah, uh, like post 19, uh, I would say 1963. That's when a lot of foreign films uh, became in vogue. The, uh, watching foreign films uh, became a thing and foreign films weren't subject to the Hays Code. Uh, and so there was a there was a controversy around this one film from I think it was Sweden called I Am Curious Yellow, and uh, there were theaters that were showing it in the late '60s that were prosecuted for uh, uh, obscenity, um, and ultimately that's one of the things that led to the creation of the MPAA rating system. Hmm. And initially it was I think G, G P, M, and X, and then that became G P G. Uh, R and X. And so in 1969, Midnight Cowboy, which was rated X and hugely successful, was was nominated for and won Best Picture. And it seemed like there was no stigma at the time around the X rating. But mm. into the 1970s, uh, porn movies started self-applying the X rating. Right. Mm. And the X rating wasn't trademarked like the other ratings. So it, it quickly it, it, it accrued this kind of taboo mm-hmm. where certainly theaters wouldn't show X rated movies. Newspapers wouldn't print the the show times, and so like by I would say 1979-1980, after the 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 failure of Caligula, the X rating became this like curse, kiss of death, and right. uh, no studio wanted to release an X rated movie. So if you were a filmmaker and your film got an X, you had to cut it right. Uh, right. And, and accommodate, you know, uh, it, cut it down to an R. And mm-hmm. so uh, throughout the 1980s, filmmakers like Martin Scorsese and critics like Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel began. Um, uh, uh, campaigning for the creation of an alternative to the X rating, an adult rating that didn't have uh, the, the stigma of the X. And that's what led to the creation of the NC-17 rating. Um, and so almost immediately, Blockbuster Video, everyone has such nostalgia for Blockbuster Video, even me. But mm. when Blockbuster was alive, I fucking hated Blockbuster Video. <laughs> and one yeah, of the things we did refuse to carry nc-17 rated movies right so nc-17 rated films they would be released in theater with theaters with that rating but then they would be there would be multiple versions of them for right home video. yeah yeah One for blockbuster and that's sure. a video store that ultimately everyone used so it, the nc-17 rating with together with that together with the failure of showgirls um it, it just resulted in the nc-17 having the same uh connotations of that the x had and I remember going to Blockbuster Video, and they would slap on this youth-restricted viewing sticker. Mm-hmm, I remember that. On unrated movies. Mm-hmm. And without any uh, um, consideration of the actual content, if it was unrated and made after, like, 1970, especially if it was a foreign film, they would just indiscriminately slap these youth-restricted viewing labels on, and you needed a parent's uh, permission mm-hmm. at the register to, to check out the film. So, like, movies like The White Balloon from Iran and My Life is a Dog, from Belgium, movies with no objectionable content simply because they were not rated had this. So I would go to my local blockbuster and I would just go from aisle to aisle fucking stripping those stickers off. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. You were taking this to the streets. <laughs> That's awesome. And the blockbuster anarchist. Um, all did, right. Did that, did that work by the way? Uh, no. Okay. Yeah. It, was, it was satisfying in the moment though. <laughs> yeah, Paul. Paul kind of reminded me. Blockbuster is kind of like how we look back at MTV. Like we're so nostalgic yeah. for when they played videos, but when they played videos, we just talked about how much they sucked. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Last confession here is from Ben Green, Baltimore, Maryland. By the time I hit middle school, restrictions on films were just about gone. And to be honest, middle school 
in my humble opinion, is generally a good time to lift restrictions on movies for kids, albeit some kids may not be ready, depending on their level of maturity. However, in spite of being able to watch just about anything by age 12, Clockwork Orange was totally forbidden. I didn't actually see it until I was 18, and to be honest, I thought it really sucked, and I think Kubrick in general is overrated, except Dr. Strangelove. Okay. Yeah, well, I disagree with all that. I mean, we can... I I kind of uh, agree that Clockwork Orange kind of let me down when I finally did see it. It didn't really strike me as a masterpiece. When's the last time you saw it? You have to see it early in adolescence. Otherwise, yeah, it's going to be a disappointment. Yeah, I do remember a lot of of punk rock boys in like ninth grade with Clockwork Orange patches, and they would tell me all about the movie. That's the sweet spot. Because I think I saw Clockwork Orange when I was 12, and I, I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then I rewatched it at like 14, and I had to show it to everybody. It, that hmm. became like, that's my movie. I need to introduce this to everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, by that age, by age 12, I think the, you know, pretty much my, my parents stopped really paying attention to what I watched. <laughs> I watched Pink Flamingos at, at age 12. Oh, wow. Um, I would, so my parents, you know, they, they never had the, uh, the blockbuster uh, version. Yeah. Well, no, it was actually, it was, yeah, uh, I, I think I got it from a store called Michelle's video. Um, I would sneak up, so we would get the uh, like the free. We didn't, we never had HBO or Cinemax except when there were free previews. And I remember when we had free previews, I would sneak up late at night and watch like the softcore movies. And mm. uh, I was always hoping to see Penetration, and it never happened. <laughs> uh, right. And there was a show on HBO called Real Sex. Oh yeah. And I thought, well, this is my opportunity to see Real, <laughs> real Sex, you know. But it was just like you know, like middle-aged naked people yeah. like, at encounter groups playing patty cake in the woods, and that did right. not that didn't turn me on. It was still pretty intriguing, though. I mean, it was, you know, it was, yeah. they got, it, yeah, it wasn't full on like hardcore, but it was still worth watching at that yeah. age when your options were so limited. <laughs> I think, I also have to say, I think it's lazy parenting to just say, like, like my parents, well, that's rated R, you can't watch it. Uh, mm-hmm. I, and I think that it just, it gives like, it encourages lazy parenting. I think there, there's this, like, uh, you know, I think there shouldn't be ratings. I think that, uh, and that's never going to happen. I, th- I don't think the MPA rating system is ever going to be abolished. There's there's video game ratings. There's uh, TV ratings. But it, it really is. It's like this this easy reference point where it, it relieves the parent of the actual work associated mm. with looking at the content right. and determining based on the content whether or not it's something appropriate for a kid to watch. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, do they still label albums like they used to with the parental advisory? I'm sure they do. I, I haven't gotten like a new album with that advisory in a long time. I don't know. Huh. It's a good question. Go over to my records real quick. Yeah, wouldn't wouldn't War on <laughs> Women have one if they do? Uh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it didn't. It probably didn't help the cause that that logo looked really cool. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? The parental <laughs> advisory, like it, it was, it was a great logo. Man, I remember my first uh, g- like guitar distortion pedal I ever got was no shit the grunge pedal. Oh yeah, the Dod grunge pedal. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Which became embarrassing very quickly, you know, but right. now is so sought after. Is it really? Oh, I yeah. remember that. But it came with stickers that like looked like the parental. Oh, they cool. Said, it's a parental advisory explicit noise. Oh, <laughs> look out. I know. Crank it up. <laughs> um, all right. Before we go, Paul. Wait, I have one. I'm back. sorry. Go ahead. We have, my confession. We didn't get to mine. Maybe that's what I was going to get to. All right. It's, you know. No, this uh, th- this is good though, I think. Yeah, it is. Um, anyway, so like, uh, we got cable one in like 1984, and it was huge because first of all, MTV, mm. huge, huge. I was like six, right? Mm. And um, and then, but we also got HBO, 
Uh, and Nightmare at Elm Street mm. was on HBO. Mm. And my parents were like, you cannot watch that. Right. But they did not know how to work the VCR. Right. And I did. So I programmed it to record it like in the middle of the night one time. And then I would like, I would watch like 10 or 15 minutes of it at a time. Like, like before I left for school in the morning. That you was know? your only, uh, only unsupervised. Yeah it, was like, it was, yeah, it was really my only window. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and like, you know, I don't even think I finished it because I was so scared. Wow. And I had nightmares like crazy, but I couldn't even like tell anybody. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. It's like every time I, every time I would see any like parallel, like vertical lines, I would, they would turn in, into like Freddy's, really? uh, like razor. That's, claw that's why you never liked Black Flag. That's, exactly. That's why I cannot stand that. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but like you know i mean like they, like my brain would just turn that into like freddy's right claw. Yeah, yeah yeah i remember there was like a there was like a <laughs> painting on a wall when i was we were spending the night at someone's beach house or something and it it was an old man like playing a banjo and i thought it looked like freddy and i couldn't sleep in there <laughs> were there were there was like certain movies or certain types of content that you when watching it with your parents you, would make you really uncomfortable oh absolutely oh God. still yeah. <laughs> I yeah. almost went to go see Wolf of Wall Street with my parents. Uh, Can you imagine? Oh, uh, anyway. <laughs> my my dad had a real hard time with profanity. So there was like a limit for him. And I remember we were watching Goodfellas. And after like maybe the 15th, <laughs> 15th F-bomb, my, uh, my dad started getting restless and shifting. Right, right. And uh, that's a long film. So right. it, it would grow increasingly uncomfortable for me. Because when I watch movies with anyone, uh, I tend to, a part of me watches it vicariously. Sure. Oh, uh, their experience becomes part of my experience. And I remember going to see Pulp Fiction with my dad. And it was it was my fifth time seeing it. And it was his first. And uh, I kept waiting for him to to like squirm and, and start sighing. Uh, and then the, you know, like the sodomy sequence was not the best thing to watch with my dad. Sure. Uh, but he didn't seem to react to any of it. And then after the film, I, I asked him, well, how did you like it? He says, eh. And I thought he was going to complain about the, the profanity. But his complaint was that it jumped back and forth too much. Oh, well. He didn't like, he didn't like the non-linear. fact. Non-linear. Right, yeah. Huh. You know, it's funny. Like, you know, I think my mom d- has has issues with that, too, I think, sometimes. Really? No, she's like, wait, wait, wait. Who's he? What? what? You know, and she she can't. I'm just, okay. mom, just chill. We don't know either. <laughs> you know, you know <laughs> well, it kind of sounds like Paul's dad was offended that they weren't yeah. respecting the law of time. Yeah. Do you remember the movie Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow? You know, I've never seen that, actually, but I downloaded it because it sounded really interesting, but I never got hmm. around to watch never it. Never heard of it. I mean, I downloaded it completely, 100% legally. Yeah. So the concept is that she's this Londoner who uh, she's late for, I think, I don't, I haven't seen it in like 25 years. I think she's late for like a work appointment or something, and she just misses the train. And it sets off this chain of events that, you know, like her life kind of falls apart. But at the same time, it doubles back. And it, it creates this alternate narrative thread where she catches the train and, and then it follows the two stories as they, her, her destiny kind of diverges mm-hmm. as a result yeah. of that one thing. And so I, I went to see the movie. My dad watched it with me and I, I didn't really like it, but I understood what it was doing. My dad did not. And he's mm. like, I don't understand. She's blonde in one scene mm. and dark hair in the other. Yeah. And so I'm trying to explain the concept to my dad, and he's really not grasping it. And I think I was like 15, so I was a little shit. And I started right. getting increasingly <laughs> condescending. <laughs> and my dad just became more and more agitated on the way home. We're driving his van. It reaches a boiling point. He says to me, 
If you don't shut your goddamn mouth, I'm going to pop you in the nose. (laughs) And uh, and of course, he cursed. I kept rocking and he punched me in my nose and my my nose bled and I kicked his windshield out. And so that's my sliding door story. God, wow. (laughs) Just like a high tension, the ending there. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I bet your dad really enjoys watching the Lynch movies with you. Uh, yeah, well, I don't think I, I don't think I ever watched a Lynch movie with my dad. Yeah, that that would that would end up. Not, that would have been cruel on my part. Right, yeah, be <laughs> even more bloody. Kicked out as a windshield, man. Yeah. Wow, I'm not shocked you got into true crime, Paul. Really yeah, not. Not, a, not a great childhood. <laughs> um, there was something Sue wanted to ask you off the. Oh, you know, it's 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 basically just um one of the things you I believe it was in like the. The, the episode that just came out of um, uh, Beyond in the Dark. Uh, I believe it's like talking about the part like leading, like like after Michelle dies and leading up to the part where you um, like are trying to like, you know, get just getting the book, decide to like all get the book together, right? You said something about like, it was like you were like hurting your body. Yeah. And, so and, I, and I was just wondering like, what, well. what you meant by that? Yeah, I didn't articulate that well, and and I I, I guess uh, if I'd had more creative input, I would have suggested using an alternate. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happened is it, it was it was very painful, and uh, I was uh, I spent most of that that weekend just kind of like pacing my apartment and crying, mm-hmm. and and I, I just it didn't feel good. It, mm-hmm. it felt like it wasn't good for my body right. to, to be in that state. And I remember googling like health effects of grief, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, right. it, it it isn't healthy. And I felt like, well, I need to find a way to snap out of this because it's it's going to hurt me. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I, I think I found a, a distraction like later that day. There used to be this app called List App. Do you remember that? No. no. Uh, it was an app that was, uh, I think it was co-created by BJ Novak. And it was just an app. It was a social media app for sharing lists, making and sharing lists. And it was one of my favorite things. Wow. And it went defunct. And it's so sad because it's like, I think that, it was one of the best like failed app ideas that wow. you should of. bring it back. Like what, like what kind of list? Like, you know, oh, uh, you know sandwiches like, or like, you know, favorite horror movies or yeah, like best, l- best point of orgasm in inter- interjections or what? I don't know, whatever. <laughs> Quite the uh, snack from there. That's like later in, in movies. Um, those are, those are my lists. But uh, yeah, so I remember I, I made a couple of those lists as a distraction and then my mind kept returning to, uh, what had happened and the uncertainty that, that kind of lay ahead. And then uh, that Sunday I talked to Patton's assistant and uh, you know, it was clear that, that we weren't going to abandon the book. And mm-hmm. so that would be somewhat, but it was a few weeks before I started kind of like uh, the, the pain started mm-hmm. subsiding. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, no grief is, is unhealthy. Be- heartbreak is unhealthy. Yeah. Um, and so to experience too much of it for too long, I think is something that to avoid it is, is a wise choice. Yeah, uh, I mean, shoot, uh, I, I'm sorry. It just, it just, I, I kept like imagining like, how would I react to all of these, yeah. you know, things piling yeah. and I, and you know, honestly, I can't even imagine. Yeah. And it was That's like so everybody, my, yeah. my heart just like goes yeah. out to everybody. And like, Patton oh, is a genuinely good person. Like he's yeah. he not an act on yeah. there. He's really like yeah. one of the nicest comedians I've met, especially at that level. Yeah. You know, it, it, and it, I, I don't know, it really like I felt like felt like everybody being so open and vulnerable, you know, kind of in in that in that 
documentary episode. You mm-hmm. know, yeah, I wasn't it, really, I wasn't really expecting that like kind of level of emotional sure. vulnerability. It, it's know? hard. It's hard talking about that stuff with with people that you don't know very well. And people that, you know, when you work with people in media, there's a certain level of professionalism that there's an energy there that um, it, it feels antithetical to the emotions that uh, are uh, that that I that that are being um, uh, extracted from me. Mm-hmm. Right. And, sure. And, you know, sometimes anxiety takes the wheel and. Uh, my uh, uh, level of um, articulacy wavers. And <laughs> yeah. in sure. the moment, uh, I use this this ambiguous phrase that I don't want people to think like I was cutting myself or something. Um, mm-hmm. So, but yeah, damaging my body. It, it is. Uh, it, it's worded in an ambiguous way that, unfortunately, um, yeah. I mean, I, I just, I, you know, like I, I was just worried about you. That's all, you know. Oh yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been a great episode, you guys. I think so. Yeah, it's fun. Great. Thanks so much, Paul. We'd love to have you back sometime. Hey, Paul, yeah. what's your what's your Twitter again? Uh, the Paul of Haynes. The Paul of Haynes. Like, the Paul of Haynes. Yeah, it's... You know, I create... Yeah, I created that just in haste because my previous Twitter handle was this... It's a handle I've been using since my adolescence, and I think it's time to retire it. It's born jaded. So people start... When the book came out, like people started tagging me and shit. And I was like, all right, I got, I got to change my handle. And, uh, you know, that's just the first one that, yeah. that was available. And, uh, where's, where can, uh, people order the book if they'd like to, is that on Amazon or oh, it's on Amazon? Yeah. Barnes and Noble, Amazon, any, any major retailer. Okay. Uh, I think awesome. It's been back on the bestseller list the past like few weeks. Oh, that's great. That's amazing. I'll be gone in the dark. I have the audio book. Do you really? I do. Oh, yeah, that's get that. Deborah Zachman does a great job. I don't know. I got it a while ago. Oh, cool. I think my mom actually listened to the audiobook. She liked it a lot. Yeah, we should listen to it sometime. Absolutely. It was too scary to listen to before going to bed, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I would not recommend that. Now, did you, I, as the true crime hipster that I am, I knew about this guy well before he became popular. Yes, Mike. He used to be called the original Night Stalker. That's I only right. listen to his old stuff. <laughs> I oh and and I forgot about this factoid. The Vasilia uh, Ransacker, that was like a separate unsolved mysteries when I was a kid. I guess they hadn't connected the two. Yeah. And that one terrified me. He they were like he was stealing people's memories instead of valuables. And that was yeah. so creepy. But he did he did the same thing um, up in Sacramento. It, it's mm-hmm. just remarkable how many how many monikers this guy's had. Yeah, serial rapist, Vicelia ransacker, cul de sac right. killer, creek killer, original Mr. Peanut. That's uh, a good, I haven't heard that one, but that's a good one. <laughs> so the, the the documentary seems to take the view that they that the Vasilia ransacker is not the same guy. Is that no? It, no, uh, he is the same guy. Okay. Uh, but we we went back and forth on it. Okay. Um, there were just as many things that pointed away from it as pointed toward it. Uh huh. So, uh, you know, it was something that um, we, we uh, were noncommittal about. Right, right. Okay. But we do know now that it was the same person. Okay. Did he admit to it? He did admit to it. Oh, in okay. All right. I mean, you know, it, it, if you want to call that admitting to it. I mean, you know, in the plea hearing, he just basically is like, I admit guilty in this way that suggests that he's not all there, which sure. is totally an act because he's an actor. He's a faker. And what he's doing, what he was doing in that plea deal, he was um, – uh, fulfilling the terms of his plea deal while at the same time denying the victims, the survivors that were present, the the satisfaction right. of him registering. Okay. That. Wow. Okay. What What is the point of 
getting a plea at that point. I mean, you're in jail for the rest of your life, no matter what, right? Yeah. I mean, was there is there a death penalty in California? Oh yeah, uh, the actual executions have been put on moratorium by Governor Newsom, okay. but sentences. I mean, it, it, all the jurisdictions had announced last year their intentions to pursue the death penalty. Oh, I um, see. So that's why he, he wouldn't have been executed. The guy is like seventy four, yeah, yeah, deteriorating very quickly. Right. So. I mean, I think we've had, what, one execution in the last 20 years in the state of California, which mm. I'm okay with. I'm not a proponent of the death penalty. I recognize mm-hmm. the only value of the death penalty is as a bargaining chip. Sure. And you see this with, uh, you saw this in the Dennis Rader case, BTK, Green River, and uh, uh, Roger Kibbe, the I-5 strangler, where prosecutors agreed to take the death penalty off the table under the condition that the offender admit to all their crimes mm-hmm. and answer every question that investigators present mm-hmm. them right. with complete transparency. And if they are found at any point to, be, to, to have been deceptive, the deal's off. Right. Uh, I don't know that that's the case with this plea deal. And I hope that it is because there are so many unanswered questions uh-huh. that uh, I, I know there's at least like 50 unresolved subsidiary mysteries really? that I'd love to see resolved. But how did this guy? It is so crazy that he was able to pull these off with ninja like perfection. But then he got caught stealing, uh, what, a wrench or something from a Uh, a, a hammer and a can of dog Dog repellent. And you know what he did when he was uh, when he was caught by the shop attendant? He feigned a heart attack. Did he really? He's He's a a red fox. Right. Yeah, yeah. Wow. or like I think uh, Larry, Larry David does that in an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, God! What a horrible he of of all of these serial killers, he seems to embody evil at like a level I've I've never really like seen a before. cartoonish level. Yeah, you know? yeah. Oh yeah, he's the most terrifying. And even the really image is. of him in, in that hearing with that with that transparent mask, mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. like Hannibal Lecter like. Yep. Yep. And and I disdain that kind of supervillain that serial killers were turned into in the 90s. That's typically not what they are. And Roger Mm -hmm. Ebert once wrote a review of a a serial killer movie in which he described a scene where the killer has like a a room with a thousand candles all lit. And Ebert was like, I want to see the scene where he goes to the store (laughs) and he's buying those candles. (laughs) He's like, Yankee Uh, candles. Yeah. (laughs) The odds of that go, yeah, in like Dracula dancing with uh, Winona Ryder. Oh, yeah. yeah. The odds of you not like... how did stuff not just burn all the time back then? Really, I know. I don't know. <laughs> um, but anyway, this has been a great episode, you guys. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank again, you, Paul. The book uh, "I'll Be Gone in the Dark" is available on Amazon and all major booksellers, and also the docu series is on HBO. Paul, this has been great. We'd love to have you back. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. <laughs>